This project is built on a hypothesis. There are moments in history when the status quo fails. Political systems prove insufficient, religious ideas unsatisfactory, social structures intolerable. These are moments of crisis. During some of these moments, great minds have entered into conversation and torn apart inherited ideas. Dethroning truths, combining old thoughts, and creating new ideas, they've shaped the norms of future generations. Every era has its issues, but do ours warrant the conversation? If they do, is it happening? We'll be exploring these sorts of questions through conversations with a cross-section of American thinkers, people who are critiquing some aspect of normality and offering an alternative vision of the future, people who might be having the conversation. Like a real conversation, this project is going to be subjective. It will frequently change directions, connect unexpected ideas, and wander between the tangible and the abstract. It will leave us with far more questions than answers because, after all, nobody has a monopoly on dreaming about the future. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Mike Assal. And you're listening to The Conversation. Did you get a chance to listen to the conversation with uh, Reverend Fife? Uh, I did. I'm impressed. I can't imagine a better place to start this. For all that I was completely nervous about going into this and doing the first interview, because this is such a sort of watery project, it's like, what's the first question to ask? Right. But it felt like once we got warmed up, I was pretty happy with it. You guys got to the, the really important big questions really quickly. You know, is the nation state obsolete? Like any one of these big fundamental ideas, it's so interesting because like you're kind of going along and you're talking about it and you're talking about why this immigration policy feels wrong in a lot of ways. Intellectually, I can totally go, yeah, but when I kind of think, what does saying yeah mean there? That's when I sort of realize how big that idea is. Like I don't I don't I can't imagine like what does that world look like without the nation state? I don't know anything else. So uh, let's let's talk about tomorrow now. Yeah, and and this is our kind of first moment to really figure out how we bridge these conversations. I, I think this is this is what's going to make the project interesting, and I think we're going to have to be learning as we go. Yes, and and for for the people who are listening to us, I hope they survive this transition as we sort of get our sea legs and figure out how to make this all work. But well, and even more importantly than that, I hope they tell us where we're screwing up. Yes, absolutely. But in gentle terms. Uh, so, so tomorrow, we're going to be meeting with, uh, with Max Moore at the uh, Alcor Life Extension Foundation. Yeah. So do you want to tell the people who, who aren't familiar with Alcor what they are? Uh, so this is you die, you have your body sent down, and it gets cryogenically frozen in these really cool-looking stainless steel tubes full of uh, liquid nitrogen. The idea being either your body or just your head is frozen in, in the intent of at some point in the future, the technology will be there to either bring you back or to download your brain into a computer or something along those lines. This is the way to preserve your consciousness. Right away, they're doing something that is fundamentally very different. And it's also based on technology that doesn't yet exist. It's banking on a certain level of development in the future, but the ethical ramifications of what they're doing, and more more than what they're doing, but sort of what they're hoping for, are really big. And you can tell on their website that they have had to deal with a lot of people not liking them. I mean, they've really thought out their position 
and they frame it in good ethical arguments that are very persuasive. And this is where I think it's going to be it's going to be incredible to talk to Dr. Moore tomorrow because his background is actually in philosophy, among other things. Uh, he actually can claim credit for coining the phrase transhumanism. I believe in the, the early, early 90s, the, there was an essay in which he sort of coined that phrase, at least in the way that we that it's now understood. So fingers crossed. Tomorrow should be good. Hopefully I don't botch the conversation, but I think Dr. Moore is going to be amazing and will probably be very interesting despite all of my incompetent question asking. <laughs> um, I guess we should probably just put in a, a quick plug for the Kickstarter thing again. If this project seems interesting to you, it would be awesome if you could uh, kick down a few bucks to help us get this happening. Yeah, so let's see where this goes. Sounds good. Very cool. All right. Take care, sir. All right. Adios. Via con carne. I've been a member of the Alcohol Life Extension Foundation for about 26 years, but I became CEO and president just about a year and a quarter ago. Uh, I've got a long history with life extension and transhumanism and cryonics, really getting interested in the idea of drastically extending the human life even before I finished growing. I was still kind of in my mid-teens when I got very serious about this idea. Uh, really, its roots go even further back than that because I've always been fascinated with overcoming limits. Uh, when I was five years old, I watched the Apollo 11 moon landing and every one of them after that, when people lost interest, I was still watching. Uh, so this idea of you know, getting off the planet, beating the gravity well, extending the human lifespan, um, also interest in increasing human intelligence, being able to solve harder problems and think better. So all this kind of common theme of overcoming limits. So life extension and cryonics is a natural part of that. Um, you know, my main goal is not to die in the first place. I hope to keep living and hopefully long enough that science will have solved the aging problem. I won't have to die. But uh, since I don't know how long that's going to take, cryonics is the, is the real backup policy for me. It's like real life insurance in the true sense of the term. So if I don't make it, it at least gives me a chance of uh, coming back again in the future. What is transhumanism? I realized we were talking about that and people listening may not know. Transhumanism is essentially the idea that it is both possible and desirable to use advancing technologies to fundamentally alter the human condition for the better. Humanism had the same fundamental values of a belief in, in the possibility of progress that by our own effort, regardless of whether there's a higher power or not, by our own effort we can make the world better. Championing of science and reason to do that as means uh, a view that um, also requires goodwill, it requires overlooking artificial distinctions among people and focusing on our common humanity. So transhumanism has incorporated that and built on that, just takes it further with the idea that we have new technological tools that are emerging that can do that on a more fundamental level and to alter the human condition itself. Uh, so that's where the transhumanism comes in. That really is the idea that the human condition is not a fixed point. Um, it's something we can alter, and we're now beginning to decode our genome, understand our neurology better. All those things that have been mysteries in the past, things we couldn't change, we are now just at the beginning point of making modifications to those. We can extend our lifespan, we can maybe improve the functioning of our brain, uh, solve a lot of the problems that evolutionary design has brought along. So it's really the idea that we're at a pretty unique point in history. We are now just beginning to take charge of our own evolution and decide on our own constitution. So this is a historically unique moment. Yeah, and that moment, of course, is smeared over several decades, but, right, uh, but, <laughs> but historically speaking, it's a moment. Yeah. yeah, it's just a point on the bigger scale. I always try to, try to look at the present and say, what is something we want to improve about the present before moving on to the question of how do we really want the future to look? 
It, I mean, it's it's funny. It sounds like such a fundamental thing, but the idea of of death is that the issue of the present, the thing that you most are interested in addressing. Yes, I think uh, overcoming aging and death to me is the central issue because if we solve that one, we have time to solve all the others. Okay, so that's that's more pressing than changing oneself in terms of intelligence or... I think that they all matter and they, they're not necessarily exclusive. I think these may need to go together. But uh, yeah, extending life seems to me the, a paramount issue. Otherwise, people are going to be lost forever. It's in a sense, you know, a serial holocaust. One by one, millions of people are dying every year. And that's pretty appalling. And I think people will look back from the future and say, it was just horrifying that people weren't taking this problem more seriously. Um, yeah, I think essentially what we are is psychological continuity. I'm not really my body. I mean, I have to have a body right now to exist because my personality resides in my brain, essentially, and that requires a body. But it's not the particular atoms I'm made of because those get changed over over time anyway. So I'm not my atoms. I'm really the way they're structured. But even that's not fundamentally true because you can do various thought experiments. What if I started replacing my neurons with synthetic neurons, which is already starting to, to happen right now? Then gradually you might end up with a brain that's entirely synthetic. But you know, these synthetic neurons do the same job as the biological one, but they're made out of different material. So I'm not even essentially biological. Uh, it's really the, you know, the processing that goes on that supports my memory, my personality, my values, and so on. I think that's the core of who I am. And so that potentially can survive changing bodies. It could survive, uh, possibly I won't even be revived in the, in the body through cryonics. Maybe my brain will be scanned and um, you know, a new copy will be made or a virtual self will be created. And I would consider that to be survival. That seems like that's ultimately rests on a, a worldview that's very materialistic. So yesterday I was talking to a reverend and he was really excited about developments in technology. But for him, the questions of how technology will be used are ultimately settled in a, in a moral realm. And I know you can address that philosophically, you can also address that theologically. But for him, he has a point where he can, the argument stops when you get to this point of there are theological values and there's the idea of a soul. And so I'm wondering, without a soul in a materialistic worldview, where do you get those values? Okay. About well, how we use technology. I do have a soul. Actually, I have two souls, but they're on the bottom of my feet. Those are the only souls I believe in. The term materialistic I wouldn't use because, actually, in philosophy, the term physicalist rather than materialist is preferred. Uh, materialist, because has the other meaning that... Of consumption. Uh, yeah, of consumption, yeah. of money, that kind of thing. Whereas, um, you know, my view certainly says nothing about you know, lack of values. Uh, it's completely compatible with having strong meaning in life and purposes and goals and values and morals. Uh, but it's a fundamentally a metaphysical view that says, I see no reason to believe in supernatural entities, supernatural forces. Uh, I can't prove there aren't such things, but you can't, really can't prove a negative like that. Right. But, but I don't see any evidence for them. So I'm essentially a physical being, and if you destroy every copy of my physical self, then I'm gone. I don't see any reason to think there is a soul that goes somewhere else. Um, you know, values are extremely important when it comes to thinking about advanced technologies and where we're headed. And certainly um, in the transhumanist movement, we do spend a lot of time not just cheering on technology, although that needs to be done because there are a lot of uh, anti-technology people around, but we also do a lot of critical thinking about the kinds of technologies we'd like, how to guide development of technologies so that they actually are, are beneficial rather than harmful. Mm -hmm. Because obviously technology has harmful side effects. Whenever we create something, the automobile being a classic example, it's you know, freed up a lot of people, uh, allowed them to change their lives, but it kills an awful lot of people. So while I think in general technology is a good thing, it's an extension of, of human reason and creativity and productivity, uh, it doesn't mean that any technology and any use of technology is good. 
So certainly in my views are we want to use technology to improve our health, to improve our intelligence, to become better people, even to improve uh, our emotions and the way we react. Hmm. Uh, we've evolved a certain way. Our, our bodies and brains produce certain hormones and aggressive reactions and territorial behaviors. Um, we just naturally have this in-group, out-group response. Those are all things that potentially could be modified. Mm -hmm. And we may do that in the future very cautiously, but we may become better people, perhaps in a way that's not really possible without technological intervention. So as we, as we look forward and we look at maybe improving as a species, how do we decide which attributes are good or which attributes are bad and what do we want to cultivate in ourselves? Well, that's a very difficult question or it's a difficult question to answer. I think fundamental answer is that we each have to think about that very carefully and make our own decisions. And to me, it's critical that nobody make those decisions for us. You know, if you go back at early 20th century and, and going up through the century, you see a lot of there are technocratic people, starting with people like H.G. Wells, who had this, this view that the scientists should be in charge. They should make the decisions for everybody. They should decide how society is run. And you've seen, um, even in the United States, eugenics movements where you know, basically some elite group was saying what kind of people they should be. Now, I'm fundamentally opposed to that approach. My approach is that it's good to create these options, but then you have to let people choose which of those options they want. And it's very difficult. I mean, there are some very tough questions. There's the example of uh, some people in the blind community who actually want to have children who are blind, who would deliberately create blind children when they didn't have to. So that raises a very difficult question. Is that something where we can step in and say, you're causing harm, we can prevent that? Or is that something that should be their choice, you know, someone bringing new life into being? That's a very tricky issue. I'm not sure what my answer is on that one. So it seems like there does have to be some sort of conversation about... Um Actually, like I was talking with, with the reverend yesterday, he was thinking about his characterization was an umpire. You know, someone who can sort of on a global level think about things that are, are not permissible uses. You know, I know there's always that tension between that individual liberty and collective good. Um, how do we have the conversation about the umpire? Well, I would hope it's not actually a global, uh, global umpire because... I mean, one reason we have you know, the United States rather than the United States here is that we can actually have differences. If you don't like the way one state operates, you can go to a different, another state and there are somewhat different rules. Now, again, there may have to be some kind of global rules. You can't allow people perhaps to possess individual weapons that um, could destroy the entire planet very easily. That may be something you have to stop. But for the most part, I think it's good to allow diversity and have different communities which set their own rules to various degrees. Uh, so I think within those communities, you know, you've got to then decide what the rules are and, and how to enforce them and what your limits will be. I've, I've read a bit um, about your thinking about the precautionary principle. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I've created something called the proactionary principle as an alternative to the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle comes in a number of different forms, but essentially it says that uh, before any new technology or process is allowed, you must be able to prove that it's safe. Now, to me, that's kind of an insane requirement. I mean, it's an impossible requirement. Well, imagine applying that to fire. First time we had fire. Could fire cause problems? Well, yes. It could, you could burn your hand. You could burn your house down. Uh, could have big problems. Okay, so no fire. You could go through all the major you know, technological advances in history and show the same thing. So basically, it's a recipe for preventing technologies. And as such, its proponents really use it selectively because they don't want to do with everything, but they want to better decide which technologies are okay. So if they don't like genetic engineering, they're going to say this fails the test, but other things they do like, they're, they're going to allow. So to me, it's very arbitrary. It really allows enemies of various technologies to claim a principled way of opposing them. But actually, it's really quite arbitrary. So 
The proactionary principle I developed as an alternative, which is a lot more objective and balanced and basically consists of 10 sub-principles, which require you to think objectively about the consequences, not just look for the possible downsides, but also to look for the benefits and, and to balance them. To use the best available rational methods that we know of, instead of relying on intuition and public fears about what might happen, use the best critical and creative methods. Can it be that with newer technologies, because they are more and more powerful and they have greater impact on us, um, the decisions to use them are perhaps not in everybody's hands? So are we getting to a point where the precautionary principle becomes more sensible? Because you can maybe have a small group make a technological decision that has a large ramification that the people who are dealing with it maybe did not want. I don't think the precautionary principle is ever a good decision rule. Because it's so arbitrary and is open to manipulation and uh, to emotional thinking, it's a separate issue as who makes the decisions. I mean. You can decide whether it's going to be everybody as a whole, which is not really feasible, or you know, certain government groups or pressure groups, uh, international policymakers. Whatever the level is, they get to choose between the precautionary principle, the proactionary principle, or something else. So it's not really a matter of who's deciding. It's a matter of which decision rules they're using. And I think something like the, the proactionary principle structures people's thinking in a way that is more likely to lead to good outcomes. Um, so who makes those decisions is a whole separate thing. And I'm generally in favor of... Uh, maximum input, but you also have to be careful that a lot of people expressing opinions may know nothing at all about the technology. Right. And so it's really not realistic to say everybody should have an equal say. I think mm. everybody should have a say, but you do need some kind of way of putting those opinions together and actually weighing up the likely truth. And that's a very tough thing to do. With a project like this, that's something I'm really interested in, you know, because everybody has to live in whatever future we're creating. I mean, this sounds sort of like you think some people should have more of a say in the future because they are more informed about the technological choices we'll be making? Well, I think they, tend, they will tend to. People who are more informed will tend to be more persuasive than those who are not informed. But if it's at the level of simply voting in a democracy, that's kind of scary because anybody, everybody has an opinion, everybody gets one vote. Mm -hmm. That doesn't really lead to rational outcomes. Now, if we could somehow encourage politicians to base decisions not just on you know, political popularity but on some more structured process, we might get better outcomes. You mentioned um, rationality, the idea that we can make more rational decisions or maybe that, say, one person, one vote will not lead to rational outcomes. But um, is there something to be said for the irrational? If people want the irrational, say they want to govern themselves badly or make decisions that honestly seem against their best interest, to what extent should we seek a future in which we're, in which society can sort of make those irrational, maybe self-destructive decisions? Well, I wouldn't want to be in that society, but um, I'm quite happy if people wanting to make deliberately irrational decisions, if they want to go off and form their own community, they're welcome to do so, as long as they don't start sending bombs back my way or something like that. But sure, I'm all in favor of that kind of diversity, and there are already plenty of communities that I think are quite crazy based on crazy ideas, and I'm not going to interfere with their way of living. Mm -hmm. But if it's something they're going to impose on me, then yeah, that's a problem. In, in, a, in a real philosophical sense, I don't think there really is any place for the irrational. But I have to qualify that by saying that that doesn't mean everything has to be rational, because it, they're not exclusive. There's also things that are irrational or non-rational, where it's really a matter of taste, or, or you know, where there's no real objective standard. Mm -hmm. like if I ask you, you know, what your favorite color is, and you say, oh, blue, and I say, wrong. Well, that's, that doesn't make any sense, right? It's just purely a preference. Mm -hmm. But when there's something you can actually test, when someone says, well, 
this energy source will be less expensive or this vaccine will produce more benefit than harm. Those are things that you can actually test objectively. But there are moral assumptions beneath them. Sure. Yeah. Right. So reason, reason is a tool leading you towards an idea of the good. Uh, it's a way of testing your idea of the good. I don't think uh, reason can generate the idea of the good. Okay. I think we have to start with what we want, much of which is completely non-rational. It's just based in the way we've evolved in our background. Reason comes in by saying, okay, given that I have this desire, uh, does it make sense? Let me ask some questions about it. Let me consider alternative possibilities. Let me ask what kind of factual assumptions might influence my belief. So reason can come in there. It can kind of test our beliefs. But you can't just start from nothing and decide what values are rational. I don't think that's possible. And that's a really intriguing thing, the idea that we're using reason as a tool to test how to achieve a goal that may actually just be sort of non-rational. Yeah, like wanting to live, that's that's non-rational. Mm-hmm. I can't give you some kind of deductive argument that you must want to live. Either you do or you don't. Is that the fundamental desire guiding your vision of the future? That's hard to say because in some sense, yes, but I'm not sure that that's a desire that you can take on its own. Right. It has to go along with other things. I, would I want to live under any circumstances? No, definitely not. If I thought the rest of my life for however long I was going to be, was going to be agony and pain and misery and inability to do anything productive or creative or enjoy relationships, then no, I see no point. So it's got to be that I, I want to live because I see a life that has the possibility of joy and pleasure and productivity and creativity and good relationships and learning and improving. Okay, so that's sort of the good. Yeah. Okay. I know I'm going to be talking to some deep ecologists down the line in this project, and I imagine that they would ask what we've lost in terms of the natural world, which of course has always been changed by us as long as we have been in it. But um, is there some intrinsic value to a relatively unmodified natural system? Can that confer meaning in some way? I don't think so. I don't know what an intrinsic meaning is. I think meaning is only relative to conscious beings. And so it has meaning, but only in the sense that we choose to bestow meaning upon it or find meaning in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I guess I'm thinking because we were talking about wanting to live, that being a subjective, irrational desire. I'm thinking maybe here's a deep ecologist who has a subjective, irrational desire to somehow exist in this sort of holistic ecosystem that is relatively unchanged by man. Yeah, again, that kind of thing to me is is a personal choice. I'm a member of the Nature Conservancy. I actually do place a value on having large areas of undisturbed wilderness. I like that. Uh, I don't think somebody else has to value that themselves, but uh, it's good that we have an organization that doesn't force you to pay free taxes, but actually goes out and solicits money and buys up areas of land and protects them. I like that. I like to just know they're there and perhaps occasionally you know, go visit and go hike and enjoy nature. So it's not that I see there's an intrinsic value there, It's just something that I value and quite a few other people value, and so we choose to support it. Okay. But fundamentally, I don't see that there's a value in in the natural state as it is. As it is. Yeah. If people have changed themselves in some way, do they become different as people, and do they apply that same attitude towards people who haven't changed in the same way that we maybe conserve nature when we enjoy it but aren't too worried about it? When I think about sort of the... The paranoia that I've, I've encountered a lot when I've read about futurist ideas, it seems like there's a lot of worry of that. Uh, I guess you're thinking of the, the kind of worry that a new species will emerge and look down upon. What or maybe it's even uh, not quite that dramatic, but like a, say we have a, a higher class of people who have greater intellect and greater ability to maybe manage and control society. And there actually is a real difference. 
Yeah, there's, that's quite a common theme. Um, I know there's a, one biologist wrote a book actually where he, he really developed that theme in detail where some people genetically engineer their children over a couple of generations. Society kind of divides into two quite different groups. I tend to think that's not so likely to happen. Uh, there might be some transitional issues there if you know people who are wealthier or more educated are the first to use these new technologies and they start off being expensive. But I think just as, again, with other technologies, if that follows the same trends, we'll tend to find people will catch up pretty quickly. It's like with mobile phones, you could have said, well, we really shouldn't let people have mobile phones because the wealthy guys are going to buy them first and they're going to have all these advantages in terms of communication and other people will be screwed. But what happens is in a rather short period of time, we go from a very few people carrying these suitcase-sized cell phones to everybody. It doesn't matter how poor they are, you can go to the poorest parts of the, of the city and you see people carrying cell phones. Maybe by actually encouraging the acceleration of that development, you can spread that technology. And I would uh, expect and hope that advances in life extension and intelligence increase will go the same way. There's sort of a, an economic theme that we haven't really talked about yet, but seems to weave a lot of this stuff together in terms of personal choice. And it seems to be very free market. I'm thinking with the cell phone example specifically. That's something that telescopes out very quickly across the population because of the market incentive to have everyone have some kind of phone. Do you think that's possible with other technologies maybe that are more lucrative to keep within groups? It makes good commercial sense to get everyone a cell phone. Does it make good commercial sense to offer the sort of technology to extend life to everyone? I think it clearly does. I think a population of people who live longer and healthier and are smarter and more productive clearly is going to raise everybody's level of wealth. People who are smarter are going to be more, more fun to interact with. If you've made yourself super smart, you don't really want to spend a lot of time talking to someone who seems very dull by comparison. You know, if you can uh, say, here, here's funding for your, your own augmentation, I think you know, a lot of organizations will, will subsidize this. Just as we have people like Bill Gates spending you know, many millions of dollars, billions of dollars to bring clean water to different parts of the world, which will improve their economies just because they won't be dying so early and young. Uh, I think a lot of people will recognize that kind of uh, almost a Nietzschean approach to benevolence, if you like, where Nietzsche basically said that, you know, that the powerful person who's overflowing with, with power will give to other people not out of obligation, not because they feel they ought to in some sense, but because they can. Are you optimistic about the future? Yes. My view is if you look at the long run of human history, things overall tend to get better. It's very popular and fashionable to complain about how awful the world is and how it's going to hell. I like to take the people who do that and just put them back in time. A hundred years, two hundred years, a thousand years. At any point in the past, they're going to find that they wish they could come back to the present. Even a simple thing like uh, the invention of anesthesia, I think has made a huge difference in life. And it's hard to imagine living without that now. That was everybody's experience. You know, a quarter of women di dying in childbearing, that was a common experience. It's pretty hard to imagine how horrible the past was, frankly. Uh, so yeah, we have these irritating things. You know, we have computers that break down and drive us crazy and waste our time. But uh, overall, we're living longer, we're healthier, we're less violent. In fact, there's been a couple of interesting books come out recently that looked at that in detail. The level of violence in human society has gone down continuously. I think many measures of human well-being are improving. Even things like you know, pollution, you can always, people always pick on certain areas and say, oh, it's getting worse. But overall, if you actually look systematically at the trends, things are getting better. Partly because as we get wealthier and our technology improves, we can afford to make it better. We can afford to have cleaner air. Uh, when you're poor and starving, and just trying to get by, you're not going to care about cleaning up the air or pollution. That's not your top priority. So I think the better off we get, uh, the more we take care of our environment. The longer we live, hopefully the more foresight we'll develop. And I think we start making some fundamental changes in the human condition that make us 
more intelligent and more refined in our emotions, then things can get better still. If I was to worry about the future, my main concerns are not that things will get worse, it's that they could if we do stupid things. You know, we, we have almost had some pretty big disasters in the past with you know, the nuclear conflicts and so on, which we've managed to avoid. It could be that we're going to invent some horrible pathogen that's going to wipe out a large part of the species. Uh, one big concern that's getting a lot of attention right now is maybe we'll develop a super, uh, super intelligent artificial intelligence that will just kind of take over in the crude Terminator scenario, just kind of wipe us all out, or just take control and make all our decisions for us in a way that we may not want. I think that, is, that kind of thing is a real concern. We have to be quite careful about that. Hmm, that's interesting, because I, th- I always associate those sort of criticisms with people who are kind of having a knee-jerk reaction, mostly based on watching The Terminator. Yeah, I think a lot of the scenarios are highly unlikely, but... Mm-hmm. You know, but that, you do that, take those seriously. Yeah, it's something we have to watch out for. Yeah, so we'll look at how we design these artificial intelligence and try to make sure that they actually are going to be benevolent, friendly is kind of the common term being used. So closing in here on the idea of the, of the conversation, we've got some amazing ideas on the table about technology in the future. Do you think we're talking about these ideas adequately enough now? Not really. No, I think it's starting to improve. But for the most part, when people talk about future stuff, it's generally in terms of fiction. It's usually you know, what, what some science fiction movie has said, which is unfortunate because those tend to be very dystopian. Uh, they're obviously you know, written to be dramatic, not to be realistic. So people tend to get a very fearful view of the future. I think we need a lot more uh, properly informed, rational discussions of future possibilities, both the possible benefits and the dangers. Uh, and we're beginning to see more of that. Um, you know, back in the late 80s, when I started Extropy magazine, which is really sort of the first comprehensive uh, publication about transhumanist futures, that was very much all about the positive possibilities, because those weren't being emphasized so much. But that's gradually developed into a more critical conversation. Uh, so that, that's happening a lot more. I think people tend to be too polarized still. It's still mm-hmm. too, too for or against. Do you think we've We've specialized so much that it's actually impossible to have that sort of common conversation. It's pretty tough. And I think one problem is that even if you really do identify an expert, the trouble is they're going to be an expert in one specific area. And almost all the interesting questions we can discuss are never limited to that one narrow area. I mean, you know, even a question like uh, what kind of energy source should we be favoring right now? Well, you may be an expert in physics. You might better know about the, you know, the properties of solar panels. But do you know your economics? Do you know, you know international affairs and uh, strategic considerations? Do you really have a good idea of how to think about how things change in the future, which requires a different methodology? So all the big interesting questions really require a multidisciplinary focus, and most people don't have that. And the more expert they are in one area, the less time they may have to be well-informed in others. So I think what we need is, rather than finding just the right people, we actually mostly need to focus on the process. Even something as simple as, if we could just institutionalize the devil's advocate process, we'd be a lot better off. But in almost every government decision, every corporate decision, every personal individual family decision, generally we think we know what we want, we argue for it, and then we go for it. How often do we actually deliberately invite someone to make their best case against it? And to encourage that, to honor the person who does that, and separating our personalities from our ideas. And that's a very simple one. So I'm thinking about our, our big hypothetical roundtable here about the future. How do we bring groups like transhumanists or Reverend Fife, who I was speaking to yesterday, who's really networked in with faith communities? You know, it seems like both have sort of metaphysically different ways of looking at the world um, and different sort of value schemes. Both are thinking about the future in different ways. How do we broker a conversation there? And you know, knowing there are a bunch of other communities that are similarly off in different directions. Do you think there can be common ground? Or do you think that's one of these things where 
there's just there's something that's so fundamentally different it's going to be very difficult to bridge I think that you can never be too sure until you work at it you may just assume from the beginning that there isn't any common ground and sometimes there won't be I mean it's very hard for me to find any common ground with any kind of fundamentalist but it's not always clear who's a fundamentalist they may not use that term they may not think of themselves that way but you may after a while of interacting someone realize that they truly are a fundamentalist that there are things they just absolutely will not question uh, so someone who's a truly a fundamentalist in the sense of you know, say Christian or Islamic fundamentalism, it's going to be very, very hard for me to have any kind of useful, productive conversation about anything of interest because their answer is always going to be, well, let's see what it says in the holy book. And that's just not the way I'm going to work. I want to say, well, let's go look at reality. Let's devise a test and see what reality says. So that's a pretty fundamental difference. But hopefully that won't usually be the case. Usually where we seem to be radically different, if we work out a little bit, we can probably find some commonality, some shared assumptions, and then clarify where we do disagree and mm -hmm. then try to you know, work on those and see if there's some way of resolving those differences. So that was the conversation I had today. Wow. I, I, uh, I envy you. That, that sounded just fantastic. It was an amazing, amazing talk. I, you know, we kind of started with, with Alcor and then suddenly we were into a lot of philosophy. Yeah, that was definitely something I was hoping to get from him. It could have been also an interesting conversation to just be talking specifically about alcohol, mm -hmm. but I think you really quickly, both of you really quickly got to the the deeper philosophical questions that actually in many ways made the specifics a little unnecessary to, to even talk about. That's kind of what I was actually hoping. There's been so much written about Alcor. As with, with any thinker who's doing something that really pushes boundaries like this, right. there's a lot of circus around it. For me, that wasn't the conversation to be having. No, exactly. Um, I wanted to get into the sort of the implications of the ideas. So I was trying to steer clear of, of the specifics. But um, in terms of things that worked and things that didn't, there were a couple things that struck me. I've really felt like Dr. Moore had a libertarian foundation to a lot of his stuff and a lot of, you know, sort of the personal empowerment of choice. Yes. And I was kind of like, as as we were going through the interview, and actually as I was riding home from it, I was thinking about, we really needed to talk more about community. Absolutely. That's going to be a big theme running through all of these, is relationship between the individual and community. And especially when we're talking to the more individualist, libertarian thinkers, community is something that we need to push them on in the same way that I think when we're talking to the more communalist, we should be pushing them on individual rights. Yeah. If you're kind of mapping which side the scale is towards, generally our societies is feeling, we lean more towards the libertarian right now than the communal. I, I think so. I want to ask more hard questions about the value of community. Mm -hmm. When we were talking about the past, I kind of regret not trying to seek out if, if maybe the past had some sort of community value. You know, I mean, sure, materially much worse, shorter quality of life. But maybe there is something communal there, and maybe that's something we can talk to other interviewees about later. I, I agree. Uh, a couple things that jumped out at me. Uh -huh. uh, one of them he actually corrected you on, which I thought was was useful, is in, you know, in our conversations and our planning for this, we've sort of, uh, we've been using the word materialist and stripping away a lot of the baggage that word carries when you and I are talking to each other. But the semantics of some of these words still matter. Yeah, I had that sort of embarrassed moment when I said materialist. And he was like, 
well, you know, in philosophy, we, we don't quite use that word. And, and here I am like having these visions of shopping and I'm like, yeah, materialist does conjure to mind shopping. Right. So physicalist, I think that makes more sense. The other one I was thinking about is when you were talking about the intrinsic value of nature and he was sort of mm -hmm. pushing back against that concept. The notion of intrinsic value is very often tied with a holdover from a religious way of thinking, you know, because Western culture is predominantly Christian culture. Those things still still have weight. But right. if you're talking with with atheists, intrinsic value is a loaded concept and we need to come up with a better way to talk about that because there is a way to talk about it with someone who doesn't believe in any sort of intrinsic value in a spiritual sense. Um, right. Let's definitely think more about those. And um, hopefully as we get these things posted, our, our participants online will, will help us think through them as well. I definitely, uh, I like that idea. So onwards and upwards. Next we'll be doing Peter Warren. That was Dr. Max Moore, recorded May 3rd, 2012, at the Alcor Life Extension Foundation office in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is The Conversation. You can find us on Twitter at, at Angus Anderson and on the web at findtheconversation.com. So, thanks for listening. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Micah Saul.